Well, as I mentioned, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and today's message is entitled, The Roots and Fruits of Life. We're studying verse by verse through 1 Samuel, and King Saul is the very first king of Israel, and he has, at this point in the story, begun his downward spiral. King Saul is seeking after his own desires, he's disobeying the Lord, and he's taking credit for God's victories. And so God promised to King Saul, I'm going to take the throne away from you, and I'm going to give it to another. And although David is only a little shepherd boy at this point, God still anointed young David as this next king of Israel. Last week in chapter 17, Israel had a big problem, and his name was Goliath. But then David came along. David wasn't in the military. He wasn't even supposed to be there, but he was just running errands. And as David arrived, David had a different perspective than the rest of Israel. David knew that this was bigger than the Philistines versus Israel. David knew that it was the Philistines versus the living God. David also knew that God was so powerful that God could even use him, a little shepherd boy, to bring deliverance and victory. And David knew that God wanted to defeat Goliath, not just so that David could feel happy or Saul could feel relieved and Israel could be safe, but so that all the nations would know the God of Israel is the one true God. David said in his speech to Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David was not concerned with his own will or his own glory. David was concerned about the will and the glory of God. And so David conquered Goliath with his sling and a stone. And then David runs up and he pulls Goliath's sword out of his sheath And he chops Goliath's head off. And at that point, maybe it was two hands lifting up Goliath's head. At that point, two things happened. Number one, the nation of Israel immediately went from panic to faith. And they charged into the battle. The Philistines, on the other hand, they immediately went from confidence to absolute terror. Because they themselves realized that they were fighting against the living God. And so the Philistines all fled, and Israel pursued them in battle. And God gave them a great victory. Now, as we pick up the story today in chapter 18, David has returned from battle. He's got Goliath's head in his hand. He's talking with King Saul. And this trophy in his hand just reminds David and everybody around him, wow, look at what God did. Look at the power of our God. And now in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, we read about David, sorry, Jonathan and David. Verse 1, now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan was King Saul's son. We read about Jonathan and his armor bearer back in chapter 14 when Israel was in another impossible battle. In that battle, Israel had only 600 people in their military 
and they only had two swords. The rest of them only had farming tools for weapons. Meanwhile, the Philistines were too many to count, and they all had weapons. But Jonathan knew the power of God. Jonathan knew that God could deliver Israel with many or with only a few. And so at God's leading, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they attacked the Philistines, all two of them against the countless multitude. And as they stepped out in faith and God delivered them, God then caused an earthquake that trembled the earth and scared the Philistines and confused them. So they began to kill each other and they began to defeat themselves. So both Jonathan and David, they both had a strong faith in God, and they were both were willing to step out in that faith, trusting God's ability to deliver them against impossible odds. Now, Jonathan just watched David defeat Goliath, but more than that, he watched David trust God when nobody else was willing to do so. They were all paralyzed by fear. He watched David's faith in action, and Jonathan says, I like that guy. I want to be friends with a guy like that. And he had the same desire too. And so, chapter, sorry, verse 2, Saul took David that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Up until this point, David had been coming to King Saul's palace to play worship for him when Saul was having hard times. But then David would go back home and tend to the sheep. And, and be at home. But now Saul says, David, you're staying with me because you're a man of God and I value you as a soldier and a man of faith. And so verse three, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. This is so significant. You see, remember, Jonathan was the next king as far as family. He was the crown prince. But Jonathan took all the things that identified him as special, all the things that identified him as the crown prince, and he gives them to David. You see, in a sense, Jonathan was saying, David, I will follow you. Jonathan wasn't just surrendering these fancy items, but he was surrendering the throne. And the only reason Jonathan could do that is because Jonathan loved God more than he loved the throne. And Jonathan knew, David, God wants you to be the next king, not me. I'm okay with that. Take my sword, take my robe, all the things that signify me as the crown prince, and you take them. It's the same heart that all of us should have. If you're, if you're taking notes today, your first fill in the blank. To follow Jesus is to regularly surrender everything to Him. To follow Jesus is to regularly surrender everything to Him. To surrender the throne of your life to Him. To love God more than our earthly rights. To love God more than our earthly comforts. To love God more than our earthly praise. And all of these things King Saul failed to do because he loved them more than he loved God. Now in verses 5 through 11, we read how Saul gets worse. Verse 5, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people 
and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David is obedient, he's wise, and he's accepted by everybody. This right here, verse 5, is the peak of the relationship between David and King Saul. Because from here, it all goes downhill. And it takes a really long time, too. Verse 6, Now it happened, as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And Saul said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Can you just imagine the pouty lip there as he says that, right? You can draw a little pouty lip smiley face if you want in your Bibles. Now, what just happened here? Just a few days earlier, King Saul was shaking in his boots because Goliath was there challenging Israel. Give me a man that we may fight one-on-one, winner takes all. King Saul is head and shoulders taller than every other Israelite. King Saul would have been the most natural choice to go up against Goliath. And yet, God stepped in and uses David to defeat Goliath. And on their march home, the women are singing and they're dancing and they're celebrating God's victory. But all Saul can think about is this. The people love David more than they love me. If I don't do something quick, then I'm going to lose the throne. If he had any wisdom, he would have realized he lost the throne a few chapters ago when he disobeyed the Lord. Saul suffered from intense jealousy. But I want us to look beyond that. Why was he jealous? Why did he care so much? What caused the jealousy? Saul's jealousy grows out of pride. You see, he thinks this life is all about him. Saul didn't care about the nation of Israel. Saul didn't care about God. He was only concerned about himself, his comforts, his will. And as a result of that selfishness and pride, he was jealous. And as a result of that jealousy, this blessing of having David, who killed Goliath, of having David, who's a faithful servant, of having this amazing victory where they thought they were all going to die. Saul doesn't see any of it. He loses his sight of all these blessings. No matter what David does, Saul views him now as an enemy, as a threat. And so, verse 9, it says, So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. Now, if you've been here with us, you recall that a few chapters ago, because of Saul's disobedience, God removed his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And God even allowed a distressing or an evil spirit to come and torment Saul. And during those times, David would come and he would play worship and he would bring relief to Saul. But Notice here, the New King James Version says that when the evil spirit came upon him, Saul prophesied. Other translations say that Saul raved or spoke like a madman, and that would be a better translation. 
Remember, the Bible, the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. And so our translations, they take the Hebrew words and they try to put it in English for us. And there's different ways you can translate it. And the idea is not that Saul is proclaiming a message from God. That would be prophecy. The idea is that Saul is babbling craziness. He's acting insane. And so David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Underline that part. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And verse 11, Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, whenever Saul felt distressed, usually David would come and he'd play worship, and Saul would be relieved. But this time was different. Different for two reasons. First of all, Saul was jealous. He'd gotten that song about David slaying his 10,000 stuck in his head on repeat, and he couldn't stop thinking about it. Second, Saul was sitting there with a spear in his hand. So not only was Saul struggling with this anger and bitterness towards David, but Saul had a means of acting out his sin with the spear in his hand. That's like trying to go on a diet with a box of donuts right in front of you. It's pretty hard. We read in Proverbs to stay away from the immoral woman. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8 says, Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. The very practical advice of don't even go near her home. You see, in order to sin, we need three things. We need a desire, a means, and an opportunity. A desire, a means, and an opportunity. This proverb we just read gives us the wisdom to avoid the opportunity. Don't even go near the immoral woman's home. Don't even give yourself the possibility of saying hi or knocking on the door or going inside. In Saul's case, he had the desire to hurt David. He had the opportunity because David's standing right there playing music. And Saul had the means because he had a spear in his hand. Now, you and I can't do much to change our desires. We're born sinners. We desire sin. We read in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's true not only in that context, but in this idea too. You and I can't change our desires. We can't change our hearts, but Jesus can. You see, Jesus is the only one that changes our desires. Jesus is the one that changes our desires. The more that you and I seek Him and follow Him, the more that we will be like Him. When you first put your trust in Jesus and you ask Him to save you from your sin so that you'll go to heaven, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit begins to dwell or live inside of you. And one of His jobs is to change our hearts. God changes our hearts. However, it's up to me to minimize the means and opportunities to sin. It's up to me to minimize the means and opportunities to sin. 
often we choose to be in a tempting situation, toying with temptation. Imagine with me what Saul might have said to himself. Well, I'm just holding on to my spear because it looks so cool. I'm not actually going to use it. It's not like I'm crazy. And besides, I might need my spear to defend myself because the people love David more than me. And then, bam, all of a sudden, I'm going to pin David to the wall. He tries to kill him. But don't we do the same thing? We tell ourselves, oh, I can handle that situation. I'm feeling strong today. I'm not going to give in. I'm just going to relax a little. I've been working so hard. I deserve a break. And then, bam, we give in the temptation. And we say, man, I did not see that one coming. And I wonder if God's just like, sure you did it. You walked right into it. We need to recognize the spears in our life. Recognize what things tempt us and make sure that we run from the temptation instead of playing with the temptation. In our battle against sin, we need to be proactive to limit our means and opportunities to sin. And let me point out that holding a spear, that wasn't a sin for King Saul. He's allowed to hold his spear, right? And yet for him, it was foolish because of what he was struggling with in his heart and because he was there right in front of David, who he wanted to harm. And so often there are things in our life that are not sins in themselves, but although we're free to have them, we might recognize it's not worth it, not for me. I shouldn't be holding that spear. I shouldn't be enjoying that freedom because I want to resist temptation. And one of the best ways to do that is to not give myself the opportunity to sin or not give myself the means to sin. So David tried, sorry, Saul tried to pin David to the wall and not just once, but twice. Verse 11 said, David escaped Saul's presence twice. Apparently after David ninja rolls and gets out of the way of the spear, he runs away and then he comes back later. And he says, I'm just going to play some more guitar, Saul. And Saul tries to kill him again. Now, what's even more amazing than David coming back for round two is the fact that David refused to pick up the spear and throw it back. To me, that's pretty remarkable. Because remember, David at this point, he's already been anointed by God in private that he is the next king of Israel. He will be on the throne one day. At this point, David already had the Holy Spirit. David already had the people's favor. David also had the head of Goliath. Surely nobody would blame David for a little self-defense against the deranged King Saul. But David doesn't fight back. He just flees. He gets out of there. We read in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And then a few verses later in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love David's example because sometimes when people are attacking us, usually it's not physically, but maybe verbally or or. They're just mistreating us. Sometimes the best thing to do is just to get out of there. 
Because if you're like me, you want to stand your ground and you've got some choice words you'd like to say back. But David runs. He gets out of there. David trusted God to deliver him from Goliath. Now David is trusting God to deliver him from King Saul. More than that, David is trusting God that God will make him king one day without David needing to stand up and take the throne by force. David's attitude was one of patience and humility and surrender as he trusted God to take care of the details. Now in verses 12 through 19, we read how Saul grows treacherous. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So for a while, David stayed with Saul. But David says, I hate you too much. I want you to go. Go out and lead this, the thousand people. Be a military leader. Verse 14, and David behaved wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. Instead of Saul celebrating such a faithful and wise servant, Saul feared him. You see, Saul's jealousy turned his blessings into curses. And so, verse 16, But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Now that David's out on the front lines, he's coming in and out of the cities, leading the people in battle, the people all get to see him, and they say, we love that guy. David's the best. He's my favorite. And you realize that Saul's plan is backfiring. Instead of getting David out of the way, he's put David out on the front lines, and everybody loves David from the whole nation. And so, verse 17, then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now, remember last week in chapter 17, when David killed Goliath, there were three rewards for killing Goliath. It was riches from the king, you get to marry the king's daughter, and you get exemption from taxes, you and your whole father's household. So David already earned the princess. He already earned the right to marry her. And yet now Saul says, you did great, Davy. Now here's what I need you to do. Keep going out to battle and keep killing more Philistines. And maybe you'll be good enough to marry my daughter one day. You see, Saul hoped David would die in his attempts. And so verse 18, so David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Again, notice David's humility. He considers himself unworthy of this gift, and yet he's already defeated Goliath. He's Saul's personal worship leader. He's a captain of the Israelite army. The Israelite women dance and sing songs about David's victories, and yet still David says, but who am I? Who am I to become the king's son-in-law? David didn't let any of this get to his head. Your next fill in the blank. A great way to fight pride is to remember all we have and all we are is by God's grace. All we have 
and all we are is by God's grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? This is not just our stuff in life. It's our talents. It's our abilities. It's the ways that God uses us. All of it is from God's grace. And David remembered that God was the one who gave him the victories, that God was the one who anointed him with the Holy Spirit, and God was the one who gave David the favor of the people. God got all the credit, and David stayed humble. And so, verse 19, but it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. It seems that Saul took the daughter pledged to David, and at the last minute, he wickedly gives her to somebody else instead. I can just imagine Saul being like, that didn't make you angry, David, did it? Huh? Did it? Did it? Did it? He wants David to blow up. He wants David to make a mistake. But David keeps his cool. Now in verses 20 through 30, we read about a story that you never heard in Sunday school. Verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So this is another daughter of Saul's. And so verse 21, Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Now again, notice that Saul's intentions are completely wicked. Saul sees this daughter's love for David and he says, I can trap David in two ways. First of all, she's going to be a trap for David because of the dowry that Saul is going to request from David. She's going to put David in danger. We're going to get to that in a second. Second, she would be a trap for David because of her character. You see, we're going to read later on as we continue through First and Second Samuel that Michael was not a godly, supportive wife for David. She was a snare. And so, verse 22, And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Saul's trying to manipulate David's heart in the matter. And Saul wanted David to think that he cared about him. Saul couldn't go right to David because he already tried to murder him twice. It's hard to be friends with people like that. So Saul's trying to spread nice rumors. He's telling his servants, guys, go tell David he's the bomb, okay? Go tell him how much I love him and how much I like him. And maybe David will believe me that I really do want to give my other daughter to him as a bride. And so, verse 23 Saul's servants spoke these, those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So in that day, you would pay a dowry to your future father-in-law 
to show that you're good for it. You can take care of his daughter and you can reward the family for the loss that they're going to have as she's now going to be your wife, your bride. But David says, I'm not worthy to pay a king's dowry. I can't do that for a princess. And so Saul says, hey, it's okay. I don't want money. Just go get me 100 foreskins from the Philistines. In other words, Saul wanted David to kill 100 Philistine men. Saul didn't care about fighting the Philistines, even though they were the enemy. He just wanted David to die trying to fulfill the dowry. Surely, in 100 chances, David's going to lose one fight, right? And as the Philistines continue to find their bodies decimated and abused, they're going to hate David more and more. This was Saul's plan. And so, verse 26, So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and he killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Again, David surprises us. By killing Goliath, he'd already earned the right to marry the princess, and yet Saul's changing the rules, he's adding to the requirements, he's manipulating David, and David says, I'm okay. I'm content with that. I can live with that. And he brings the dowry. In fact, he brings double the dowry. David had his eyes on the Lord, not on himself. That's why he was okay in the midst of being manipulated and cheated. And so, verse 27 continues, Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Saul could see that God was with David in everything that David did. He continued to act wisely and faithfully, and God blessed David, and it caused Saul to grow more and more bitter. Think about the many blessings that Saul still had. At this point, he's still on the throne. He's still king. Saul has sons and daughters. Saul has victory over the Philistines. Saul has a faithful servant that'll do whatever he tells him to in David, and yet it wasn't enough for Saul. He wanted to be loved and praised more than David. Saul's envy and bitterness and insecurity dominated his heart. And so, verse 30, Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, where whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. This chapter ends with Saul growing more and more paranoid and David growing more and more highly esteemed by all. There's a few points I want us to make as we close. Here's the first one. How we act reveals what we believe. How we act reveals what we believe. Let me explain this as we look at a picture of King Saul's life. The tree represents Saul. The fruit in the tree represents Saul's actions, the things that he does. The fruits are what we can easily see. 
consider some of these fruits in Saul's life. Here's one. He tried to kill David twice, so he's an attempted murderer. He was jealous of David when they praised David more than him. He tried to manipulate David by offering his daughter in marriage and putting David in danger. We would call all of these bad fruit in Saul's life. But this bad fruit reveals what Saul was rooted in, right? Because how we act reveals what we believe. And so in the diagram here, in his heart, Saul believed that this is my kingdom. He believed that. Saul believed that this life is about me and my name. Saul even believed that he could outsmart God. It was all pride, all pride. And notice that all of Saul's beliefs, all that he was rooted in are lies. And yet, this is who he was. These are the things he believed in his heart. This is why his fruit was so horrible, because he believed these lies. Now, in contrast, let's look at this tree that represents David, David's tree, and we'll start with his roots. See, in David's heart, he believed that God gets the credit in his victory over Goliath, that it was God's power, not his own power. David believed in his heart that God is in control and has a plan. David believed in his heart that life is about God, not about me, not about us. And as a result of these beliefs, when David was attacked, he didn't fight back, but he forgave Saul. When David was manipulated, he kept serving faithfully. He had a servant's heart. When David was cheated, he kept trusting God's plan, being patient and faithful, saying, God, I know that you're in control. I know that you're going to take care of these details. You said I'm going to be king. I don't understand how that's going to work because the guy on the throne is crazy. He's trying to kill me. But Lord, it's in your hands. Even when David was praised by all the ladies in Israel, he remained humble. The reason this is so important for you and for me to recognize is because we often focus on the fruit. We emphasize the need to be humble or not murder people. Those are good things, right? But sometimes we forget that the fruit that we bear is a result of our beliefs. We might recognize, man, I need to be more forgiving. I need to be more patient. I need to love more or better. And those are good things. But we can't fix those external actions, the fruits of our life, without addressing the internal beliefs in our heart. You see, your next fill in the blank, what we believe affects how we act. What we believe affects how we act. In other words, don't focus on your fruit. Focus on your root. What truths or what lies are you believing? You may find yourself struggling with selfishness. And you'd never admit that you actually believe this life is about me. Okay, everybody? Just want you to get that straight. This life is about me. None of us would ever say that, at least out loud. And yet, sometimes our actions, our fruit, might tell a different story. Maybe it's time that 
we humble ourselves. Maybe we need to admit that our heart is actually a bit darker than we would like to believe, a bit darker than we've realized. And we need to ask God's help to actually believe the truth that this life is about God. It's about His kingdom, not my kingdom. It's about His name, not my name. His praise, not my praise. His riches, not my riches. Fix your roots and the fruit will come. Saul tried to live for his kingdom. And as a result, he lost God's blessing. He lost the Holy Spirit. And he's losing the people's favor. Remember, Saul began with little sins. Back a few chapters ago, when he offered the sacrifice that only the priests were allowed to offer. But he says, it's not a big deal. I'm going to do it because this world's about me. And then it got a little bit worse when God gave him a command, I need you to go and destroy all the Amalekites. And Saul says, you got it. I killed most of them, not all of them. And I kept all their stuff because it's worth a lot. And this world's about me, not about you. Do you think Saul ever realized he'd reach a place where he's trying to murder people? Do you think he ever thought that he'd be trying to murder his most faithful servant? Probably not. But because he continued to believe the lies, this life is about me. He ended up doing some horrible things. Don't end up like Saul. Don't believe the lies of Satan and the lies of this world. Because those lies will make you foolish like Saul was foolish. What does your tree look like? What fruit do you see in your life? Hopefully, you see some good fruit. But when we see any bad fruit, we need to go beyond what we see and say, well, what am I rooted in? Am I rooted in the truth of God's word or in the lies of this world? Because when we see bad fruit in our life, that's the opportunity for us to say, okay, why did I do that? Why do I desire that? Why did I chase after that? Why do I fight for that? Why do I live for that? And let that reveal to us what's in our heart. Now, I warn you, it can be quite surprising because I'm a sinner. And I've, I've been surprised by my own sin. I've been surprised by my own darkness in my heart. But here's the good news. God's not surprised. He already knows. In fact, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sometimes our hearts can even fool ourselves. But God's not fooled. He knows what's there. And even better than the truth that God knows what's in our heart, He says, I can take care of it. He loves us, even though our hearts are broken and dark and sinful. And He invites us to trust in Him and say, Lord, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I cannot fix my life. I can't change my heart. I can't change my desires. But Lord, You can. And You'll not only change my heart, but Lord, You'll give me eternal life in heaven by trusting in your finished work on the cross. And if you haven't made that decision, then I invite you to make it today. Simply recognizing, Lord, I'm guilty of sin, and you are the only one 
that can save me. Because Jesus is the only one that lived a perfect life, which means he doesn't have his own sin to deal with. And then he went to the cross in our place, and he died and then he rose again. Trust in him with your life. For most of us, we've already made that decision, and yet we need to return to look at our heart and say, Lord, search me, O God. Reveal what's in my heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God, make me more like you. Change my desires. Give me the wisdom to run from those opportunities of sin, to put aside those means of giving in the temptation. And God, help me to live my life for your name and for your glory. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you know the depths of our heart, and yet you still love us the same. Lord, it's not just a, a love in the world's eyes, but it's an active love, a love where you actually left your throne in heaven and you came down, born as a man, and you took our sin and our shame, our disgrace and our failures, and God, you took them upon yourself. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to bear our sin, to put your name on our mistakes. God, thank you for loving us enough to resurrect into eternal life. Opening that door, the one and only door of salvation, the one and only way for anybody to go to heaven and have their sins paid for. God, you've opened up that door. And you, Jesus, are that door. God, we just want to resubmit ourselves to you this morning. God, we cry out and say, Lord, I give my heart to you. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty dark. I don't even understand it most of the time, but Lord, I give it to you. And God, help me to make that decision every day as I resurrender my life to you. Lord, I ask that you would give us the wisdom from your Holy Spirit to evaluate the fruit in our life. And let that fruit reveal if there are any lies that we have been believing. And then, Lord, may we surrender them to you. Lord, would you continue to change us from the inside out? God, would you use us, your church, for your glory and for your name? God, would you help us to run from the foolishness of Saul, from the foolishness of pride? And God, would you humble us and help us to be like you. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.